The House now comes to oral questions. The first in the name of the Honourable Carmel Cipollone. Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Yes, and especially the very strong actions the government has taken to ensure that we're focused on improving the lives of New Zealanders by rebuilding the economy. And particularly with news out this morning that the previous government's economic mismanagement saw the economy shrink in three of the past four quarters. Three of the past four quarters. And in particular, in particular, I stand by our action to stop the significant risk posed to taxpayers by costless, cost escalations on KiwiRail's ferry project. I also our action to focus the Reserve Bank on fighting inflation, which has caused pain and suffering to all New Zealanders. Of course, our action to actually uh, change the speed limit rules to allow New Zealanders to get to where they need to go faster and safer. I have to tell you, this is a government that is elected with a mandate for change and is unashamed and unflinching focus on cleaning up the mess left by that member's government to get our country back on track and realise all the great potential that sits in this country. Mr Speaker, does he stand by his government's decision to suspend regulatory impact statements for proposals in his 100-day plan? And does he feel that suspending advice on the impact of his decisions is based on data and evidence? Uh, we are very comfortable in suspending um, regulatory impact statements because we don't think they'll add value for decisions that we're repealing legislation. Mr Speaker, does he agree with the National Party leader, Christopher Luxon, that, quote, I can tell you we're going to be straight with the New Zealand people, tell it as it is, the good, the bad and the ugly, end quote, if so, what's changed? Uh, very much. We're going to be very straight up with the New Zealand people. And what they have heard today is that this is a that was a previous government that led three of the last four quarters declining economic growth. What they've heard today, and we've been straight up with the New Zealand people about, is a $15 billion New Zealand upgrade project with an Auditor General's report that says it was appallingly managed appallingly managed. And what you're going to see is a government that is very focused on making sure taxpayers are not treated like bottomless ATM machines that we get returned for their money. Mr Speaker, did he suspend regulatory impact statements before or after the regulatory impact statement for repealing fair pay agreements was leaked? Uh, we are determined to make sure through repealing the fair pay awards uh, legislation that we can actually make it easier for people to hire workers, not harder. Uh, point of order, I think I know what's coming. Yeah, what do you want to yeah. do it? <laughs> I think you could do a bit better with the answer, Prime Minister, on that one. Uh, it was before. It was before. Oh. Mm. Uh, Mr Speaker, does he stand by his government's decision to repeal fair pay agreements, the Reserve Bank dual mandate and the clean card discount under urgency with no select committee process or regulatory impact statement, or does he agree with Chris Bishop that, quote, this is a disgraceful way to make important law, end quote? And answer the first leg of the question, yes. Mr Speaker, has he suspended receiving regulatory impact statements because, A, he doesn't like what they say, B, because he's going to ignore them anyway, C, because he knows they'll leak, or D, all of the above? <laughs> We went to an election, we had a campaign, we made very clear what we were going to do, and we're going to do it. Order. Uh, supplementary, uh, supplementary uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Supplementary. Uh, in light of that uh, answer, can we now expect that because of the election result, no pieces of legislation will be referred to a select committee? No, that's we want. We want proper process. Uh, a proper process. No, 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 no. Listen, hear the answer. Hear the answer. The answer is when we went to the election with very good clarity about the policies we're going to repeal, and the and the dumb legislation from the previous government that we're repealing. Are we going to move forward with great speed so that we can actually get this country moving forward? But what I just say, I think it is ironic. On a day, on a day, on a day, on a day. On a day when we've had economic news where three of the last quarters uh, under the previous government we had negative economic growth at a time when inflation has been out of the ban for the last over 21 months, when we've seen wages not keeping pace with inflation, we haven't had a single, a single economic question from the opposition. 
a single economic question from the opposition. Can I ask the Prime Minister, has the government just learnt with respect to Kirwell that the lack of impact that the impact statement had on the previous government? <laughs> uh, no, that was, uh, look, I'll tell you what. These sort of questions aren't uh, very helpful to the order of the House. They might be enormously entertaining for a number of people, but they're not helpful for the order of the House, and that's two days in a row. So can you sort of keep it down to genuine questions? What was the offence? Well, there must be a lot of genuine questions you could ask the government. What was the uh, could I call on the Honourable Phil Twyford? Supplementary. Does the government now support the immediate humanitarian ceasefire it voted for at the United Nations General Assembly yesterday, or does it still believe there are a list of preconditions that must be met before calling for a ceasefire? I think our position is very clear. We want to cease to hostilities, as you've seen in the parliamentary statement, as you've seen from the joint Prime Minister's statements for Australia, New Zealand and Canada, and as you've seen for our support for the General Assembly resolution. Thank you. Call on uh, question number two, Stuart Smith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What reports has she received on the state of the New Zealand economy? New Zealand is experiencing difficult economic conditions. Statistics New Zealand confirmed today that GDP declined in the third quarter of this year, a third decline in just the last year. It's also been confirmed that New Zealand did experience a recession at the end of the last year and the beginning of this year. I've also seen reports from the member for Rimutaka who claimed last week that we, quote, inherited an economy that is growing faster than many economists had predicted, quote, and that the economy was, quote, never in recession. But I have seen no evidence to confirm those reports. Stuart Smith. Uh, what reports has she seen on the outlook from here? After six years of economic mismanagement, turning the New Zealand economy around won't be achieved overnight. Our government has inherited big fiscal deficits, a large current account deficit, an economy in decline and a labour market on the skids. Rebuilding the economy will be a massive task, which is why we are moving fast and getting quick wins as part of our 100-day plan. What reports has she seen on GDP per capita? Today's GDP per capita figures show on a per-person basis the New Zealand economy has gone nowhere since the start of 2021 and has gone backwards four quarters in a row. The last time GDP per capita continued to slide for at least that long was during the global financial crisis. Kiwis knew they were going backwards under Labor. Today's data is just a confirmation of the challenge they face. Uh, what? Yep, what steps is the government taking to turn economic conditions around? The government is taking urgent steps to rebuild the economy in the interests of all New Zealanders. We're supporting the Reserve Bank in their fight to beat inflation because after years of rampant spending, this government understands that monetary policy needs mates. We're eliminating wasteful spending, ensuring taxpayers' money is spent well, and we're clearing out the blockages in the economy and reducing costs on business so we can chart a course back to growth, investment and opportunity. Call on question number three. In the name of the Honourable Dr Megan Woods. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My speaker is to the Minister of Energy. What are the total emissions reductions that will result from the doubling of renewable energy that was promised by the Prime Minister? Our commitment to doubling renewable energy will provide businesses with the investment certainty they need to make the switch to renewable energy, which will ensure emissions reductions. We have started work on updating the National Policy Statement for Renewable Electricity Generation to make it easier to consent renewable energy. Part of that work will include getting that advice. I note that Boston Consulting Group uh, study, The Future is Electric, found electrification could reduce annual carbon emissions by 22 million tonnes in 2050. Speaker Supplementary, what percentage of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions come from the energy sector? What percentage of our energies is about 50 per cent? Mr Speaker, can he confirm 
that the percentage of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions that come from the electricity generation is 5.7%, whereas the percentage of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions that come from the energy sector is 40.6%. Well, as the member rightly knows, those are very good statistics, and I'm sure she's correct. Mr Speaker, what other policies then does the government have to reduce the 40.6% of New Zealand's emissions that come from the energy sector, given that the Minister's own officials advise that only 5.7% of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions come from, the electricity come from electricity generation, and the Climate Commission advise complementary measures to the ECS are required to shift industrial and process heat from carbon Source, carbon sources. Well, as the, as the member will know, and being a former Minister for Energy, um, the electrification of our economy is going to require a significant amount of more electricity to be generated. That is why we have a policy of updating the National Policy Statement for Renewable Electricity Generation to double renewable energy in New Zealand. And it's not just, not just for electricity uh, supply now, but for all of the other activities that it's going to be required in transport, in industry, in energy, uh, all of those other factors. And I thought the member might know that. Call on uh, Scott Willis. Oh, point of order, Mr Speaker. Oh, point of order, sorry. Mr. S Mr Speaker, I did actually ask a very specific question, and it was around policies that are going to be required to move okay, energy look, look, emissions to, to, over to yeah, electricity. Stop arguments that, and save time. It, it was a very long question. Can you ask it concisely again? OK. What policies does the government have to move industrial and process heat coming from fossil fuel sources to electrification? Well, this government uh, will use the emissions trading scheme, which is a critically important tool, an incredibly important market-based tool to help move New Zealand and bend the curve of emissions down. That government over there wanted to subsidise wealthy businesses with profitable businesses using taxpayers' money. We'll use the emissions trading scheme as the key tool. Scott, Mr Speaker. Uh, on Scott Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question to the Minister is, what is his plan to fix market imbalances in an electricity market dominated by four gen tailors, which today's Generating Scarcity 2023 report shows has stifled investment in renewable electricity generation and resulted in billions of excess dividends to shareholders, all the while Thousands of New Zealanders struggle to heat their homes. I appreciate, I appreciate that's the member's first question, but it's a very long one and contained quite a, a degree of statement. So think, just work, work that one through in the future. But the Minister uh, will now answer the, the uh, Honourable... Well, sorry, the Honourable Simeon Brown. Well, thank you. And it's a very, a very good question. But what is uh, stifling uh, the market is was this former government's uh, on, Lake Onslow programme, $16 billion... Dollars which was actually stifling investment yeah, yeah, in yeah, renewable generation in New Zealand. Honourable Megan Woods. Can Dr. he Megan confirm Woods. that for the ETS alone to shift industrial process heat to electrification, the price needs to be in excess of $200 a tonne? And can he advise New Zealanders what it will do to their electricity and petrol bills at that price? Well, what I can confirm is this government is going to have the, the, the tools and the policies to double renewable energy in New Zealand so we can electrify our economy. What I would say, though, to the businesses, the profitable businesses, which were receiving subsidies under that government, they will not be receiving them under this government. They should be making those investments themselves. Very good. Thank you. We'll call question number four, Grant McKellar. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Infrastructure and asks, what recent reports has he seen on decision-making processes for government infrastructure investments? Mr Speaker. The Honourable Chris Bishop. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've seen a deeply concerning report from the Auditor-General into the shovel-ready and New Zealand upgrade programmes. Mr Speaker, the Auditor-General found that Ministers did not have enough information to be sure that decisions supported value for money and that the government carried out due diligence after announcements were made. He also has reported to Parliament that as part of putting together the report, 
some of the so-called shovel-ready projects were not actually shovel-ready at all. Like many who have read this report, Mr Speaker, I was shocked to learn of, the, learn of these findings and see how badly the schemes were managed. Mr Speaker, were ministers provided advice which raised concerns about their proposed plans for these government infrastructure investments? Mr Speaker, yes they were indeed. The Auditor General found that at several points officials advised ministers of risks to value for money for both the upgrade programme and the shovel-ready programme. What's more, Mr Speaker, ministers were explicitly advised there's a real risk of cost overruns as well as delays. The Ministry of Health, Mr Speaker, advised a number of health projects were not ready to be announced. Yet despite all these warnings, ministers pushed on with the announcements anyway. Supplementary. Did the Auditor-General raise any additional concerns about ministerial decision-making? Well, Mr Speaker, unfortunately he did. He found that ministers made their decision to progress some of these projects despite the projects not being fully scoped or even planned. Business cases were not always available or up to date. In the case of Auckland Transport, announcements were made about Auckland Transport projects and the Auckland Transport were not even asked for the business cases or for the information about the projects they were responsible for. It is clear ministers were too worried about hitting send on press releases rather than ensuring value for money for taxpayers. Supplementary. Hold on. Just a moment. Just a moment. Now, just, just, just stay standing. We just have a bit of quiet while people are asking their question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Supplementary. Did the Auditor-General raise any specific concerns about transparency and integrity as part of these infrastructure investments? Mr Speaker, yes he did, and this is very worrying. The House should listen to this. The Auditor-General stated, and I quote, a lack of transparency and documentation about how and why decision-makers made significant decisions can create the perception that processes lack integrity. Mr Speaker, to quote the report itself, during the process of long-listing, short-listing and ministers making final decisions, many changes were made to the list of projects under consideration. There were frequent discussions between ministers, officers and officials during this time, and some projects were added from outside the infrastructure reference group process. My staff found it difficult to determine how or why these changes were made. The, uh, the Honourable Barbara Evans. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does he agree with the comments made by Honourable Shane Jones in the Northern Advocate on the 22nd of May 2021? I quote, we had a pretty good lick of the cherry in the last three years, and as far as Northland is concerned, I've learnt the hard way and that the challenge to getting things done is timeliness and execution. Now the asset is on the system to get the projects running and to get the money out. For a small country with a very modest population, we spend an inordinate amount of time ticking boxes. <laughs> Point of order, right on Woodson, Mr. Speaker, that is a seriously true statement, excepting <laughs> it is not the Minister's responsibility to answer it. Uh, I think he, the question was, had he seen? It, well, you're, you're allowed. It's a bit like assumption. You're allowed to speculate occasionally, and in this case, it's not unreasonable. Oh, Mr. Speaker, I agree with a lot of what Shane Jones says, but particularly, particularly about the need for speed when it comes to consenting, about which the government, about which the government will have more to say very soon. Parliamentary, Grant McCallum. Were the stakeholders who these projects impacted well consulted as part of this process? Well, Mr Speaker, it won't surprise the House to learn that the answer is no. In one of the most surprising findings of this deeply troubling report, key stakeholders like the Infrastructure Commission and Auckland Transport had to find out about the New Zealand Upgrade Programme through media coverage. And if that isn't reflective of the priorities of the last government, I'm not sure what is. Mr Speaker, we are a government, a coalition government, who knows that high-quality infrastructure boosts our economy and benefits all New Zealanders. We are committed to multi-generational infrastructure up and down this country, but we also know that proper process and respect for taxpayer money should be at the forefront of our decisions, and it will be under this coalition government. Go! 
Good. When the House is ready, the Honourable Julianne Chenter. Tanakwe, Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Transport. What did the official advice provided to Cabinet on 4 December estimate would be the impact of discontinuation of the clean car discount on New Zealand's carbon dioxide emissions? And were there any inconsistencies between this advice and other analysis provided by the Ministry of Transport? Uh, the advice to Cabinet noted that the transport sector remains on target to achieve its con contribution to the first emissions reduction plan. Advice provided to Cabinet is consistent with all the advice provided to me by the Ministry of Transport. Point of order. Um, Mr. Speaker, um, the Minister has referred to this document, and I'm wondering if we could ask the Minister to table the document since he's referred to the content of it in the House. Uh, if it's, a, it's a matter of whether or not he relied on the document in the House or was simply making a statement from it. Uh, so I'll ask the Minister, is that a document he has with him in the House that he would want to table? I just said that it was advice provided to me. Advice provided, yeah. I think there's quite a slight difference between advice provided and a document. So thank you, but uh, your next supplementary. Why won't he release the draft regulatory impact statement that was prepared by the Ministry of Transport on the impact of carbon emissions before we vote on the legislation today? Well, it was a it was a draft uh, a draft document. <clears throat> Why won't he release the draft document so we can see what the draft advice was before we vote on the legislation? Well, it was, a, it was a draft document. I've asked Ministry of Transport officials to prepare the proactive release of this cabinet paper and regular impact statement. Mr. Speaker, supplementary. Su supplementary, Julianne Tinter. Why won't the minister release the advice produced by the Ministry of Transport, telling us what the impacts of the repeal of this legislation will be on New Zealand's carbon dioxide emissions? before we vote on the legislation in the House today? Well, well, well as, as, as I've said, the advice to Cabinet noted that the transport sector remains on target to achieve its contribution to the first emissions budget. Uh, supplementary, Simon Court. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What impact will removing the clean car discount have on transport emissions, given they're already covered by the emissions trading scheme? Well, that is a very good point. They are covered by the emissions trading scheme and capped under that scheme. But I also, as I said in my answer to the primary question, the advice to Cabinet noted that the transport sector remains on target to achieve its contribution to the first emissions reduction plan. Thank you. Uh, Cameron, uh, Mark Cameron. Are there other impacts from removing this ute tax, like the benefits to the rural communities who will no longer need to pay the fee on their farm vehicles? Well, yes, this, uh, this removal will have a huge benefit for our rural communities. In fact, Mr Speaker, the advice I've received shows that of, of the $290 million paid in tax under the ute tax scheme, half of it has come from people buying utes. Many of them will be farmers and tradies in our rural communities. Honourable Julianne Chenta. Does the official advice that the Minister is refusing to release before we vote on the legislation concur with the report released by Concept Consulting for Drive Electric that the reduced uptake of electric vehicles because of the repeal of the clean car discount will see New Zealand spending over a billion more on imported oil from overseas and delay mean that we will import 100,000 fewer EVs in the period from now to 2030, thereby increasing carbon emissions relative to if the scheme stayed in place. Uh, I dispute the assertion uh, made by the, the member. In fact, I was very pleased to see yesterday uh, that Ford announced that from the 1st of July, the day after the tax will be removed, they will be reducing the price of some of their electric vehicles from between five and $8,000. The market works. Honourable Chris Bishop. Has, has the minister uh, seen uh, or received reports about past examples of ministers adamantly refusing to release uh, correspondence uh, about uh, related matters to the transport portfolio that might be in the yeah. public interest to yeah, release. Well, that's, uh, you may want to ask that question, but the minister's not going to answer it. It's in the same category as the questions Supplementary. earlier. Supplementary. But not uh, particularly relevant to the question. Uh, Supplementary. Honourable, Honourable Julianne Chender. 
Uh, if the government is concerned about subsidizing wealthy people, why is the government happy to give money, billions of dollars in tax breaks to wealthy landlords when that does nothing to reduce emissions? Is it the case that this government is happy to give money to rich people when it does nothing to reduce emissions? Uh, sorry, that question's out of order as well. So we move now to uh, question number six in the name of Mike Buttrick. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Education. What recent reports has she seen around distractions in classrooms? Honourable Erica Stanford. The 2022 PISA results released last week found that half of students said learners get distracted by using devices in every or most math lessons compared to 30% of students on average in the OECD. Many parents have expressed concerns about the use of cell phones at school, and research indicates that removing these distractions leads to an improvement in academic achievement, health, and other social benefits. Supplementary. Uh, Mike Buttrick, we just wait for a minute for the House to go quiet. What Thank does the. Okay, point of order, Debbie Narugo Packer. Uh, with respect, we're struggling to hear. Um, so if we could just have some of the speakers move forward. Yeah. Thank you. Can, we, uh, can the technicians just find out whether that mic is going as well as it could? Uh, but we will take the supplementary from Mike Buttrick. What does the government plan to do about this? Mr Speaker, to assist a turnaround and falling achievement, students need to focus on their schoolwork during their precious class time. That means doing what we can to eliminate unnecessary distractions. That is why, as part of our 100-day plan, the government will ban cell phone use during the school day for students so they can focus on their learning. New Zealand schools that have banned cell phone use and overseas jurisdictions that have imposed bans report better concentration and engagement in class and have seen an improvement in achievement and well-being. Mike Patrick. What feedback has the Minister heard around the banning of cell phones in schools? Mr Speaker, feedback from principals has been, uh, who have already imposed bans has been very positive. In a recent New Zealand Herald article, Otago Boys uh, High School Rector Richard Hall said banning cell phones during school hours was one of the best things I've done. Hall said that since the policy was implemented, since the policy was implemented, it was now normal to see boys interacting and playing together during breaks. Staff were also spending a lot less time dealing with cyber bullying. A 14-year-old student from Hillmorton High School in Christchurch, Mr Speaker, said people are talking to each other more rather than just sitting on their phones. She said in whānau groups, people are actually talking and socialising and getting to know people more. Also, you're not distracted by things on your phone and can focus more on your schoolwork. Yeah, well, I'm going to ban all commentary on all questions if we can't just be a little more orderly. Mike Buttrick. Does this change eco global trends around cell phone use in schools? Mr Speaker, yes. More and more countries around the world are banning or considering a ban on cell phones in schools. This year, a UNESCO report called for a global ban on smartphones in schools, and they found that the use of social media in the classroom is disruptive and has negative impacts on learning outcomes. The mere presence of a mobile device was found to distract students and have a negative impact on learning areas in 14 countries. The use of technology is associated with negative impacts on physical and mental well-being and increased susceptibility to risk, online risks and harms, which affect academic performance in the long term. And I suggest that if the opposition have a further supplementary, they should take that opportunity. But I suggest that they probably won't. Thank you. Question number seven, the Honourable Al Shapiro. Mr Speaker, thank you. My question is to the Minister of Health and asks, does he stand by all his statements and actions? Mr Speaker, oh, on behalf the of the Minister, yes. I particularly stand by my statement on the New Zealand Health Survey that the results underline, quote, just how badly an urgent change in direction for health is required. Yeah. Dr. Mr Speaker, is it correct that the New Zealand uh, Health Survey 
shows that the smoking prevalence for Māori is still 17% and repealing amendments to the Smoke-Free Environmented and Regulated Products Act will mean unacceptable levels of Māori cancers, Māori deaths, and aren't those outcomes worth showing some moral courage for? Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, this has been delegated to Minister Costello. What the Minister has said is that this Government is committed to reducing smoking rates. This Government is committed to reducing smoking rates and helping people quit smoking. Mr Speaker, does he stand by his answer last week that the target of 5% smoking prevalence was unlikely to be achieved even with that Government's proposed policies? Or does he agree with Dr Shane Retty MP's statements that the denicotinisation proposal, quote, by itself almost gets us to the smoke-free target that we're looking for? Uh, the Mr. Matt, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, as I've said to the House before, this has been delegated to Minister Costello. Can he confirm that following this flip-flop, the Government's health policy amounts to nothing but scrapping the free prescriptions initiative in order to fund cancer medicines, while allowing more cancer-causing tobacco to fund millionaires' tax cuts? Mr Speaker. On behalf of the Minister, this Government is committed to improving health comes for all New Zealanders, including Māori. Particular areas of need we are targeting is shorter stays in emergency department, faster cancer treatment, improved immunisation, shorter wait times for first specialist assessment, shorter wait times for surgery. And I find it interesting with that member who was part of a government that took a wrecking ball to our health system in the middle of a pandemic. That's enough. What does he say to the thousands of people who, who marched, the 47,000 who signed the petition, the 67% of voters who want our smoke-free laws to stay, and why won't he front up to them? Mr Speaker. On behalf of the Minister, this Government is committed to reducing smoking rates and helping people quit smoking. Listen, um, we're going to have to make a bigger effort when questions are being asked. With all due respect to uh, Dr Verrill, when she was asking her questions, a lot of the commentary was still coming from both sides of the House. Uh, even, even though you're quick out of the blocks, you've still got to show that respect. Honourable uh, Davidson. To the Minister of Health. Does he stand by his statement, quote, the dream I have for Māori is to lift pretty much every health metric we have to the level we have for non-Māori. If so, what actions, if any, will he take to achieve this? Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, yes. And I stand by the rest of the quote where the Minister said, quote, I think the hapu probably know what's best for their communities, end quote. Supplementary. Who? Supplementary. Who, Linden. Tēnā Mr Speaker. To the Minister. How will Māori health leadership be brought into the health sector when you intend to disestablish Te Aka Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, can I point the member to another quote? Uh, quote, my dream is to devolve decision-making and funding and give to mana motahake as close to home and hapu as possible. Supplementary. Why is the Minister proposing to repeal a structure that will enable te to take a local approach, empowering hapu, iwi and whānau through iwi Māori partnership boards and localities. Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, as outlined in the speech from the throne, services will be delivered on need using a range of effective providers including iwi and community groups who have the best reach into the communities they serve. Mr Speaker, on this side of the House, we believe communities know what's best for their people, not Wellington. Supplementary. If the 
AFP agrees that iwi and Māori are a best place to ensure our health system works well for Māori at a central level as well as through local devolution, then why not ensure this is resourced through Te Aka that was already established instead of creating a new model? Mr Speaker, if I can, on behalf of the Minister, if I can point uh, that member to another quote uh, from the story she's referenced, Quote, the difference in philosophy on where we want to go and where the Māori Health Authority was going was why uh, was all that funding held in Wellington with a Wellington knows best approach. Does he acknowledge that removing the smoke-free laws will mean more people will die from smoking while the only people who will benefit from this are landlords getting tax cuts? Where did that come from? Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, uh, on behalf of the Minister, have stated in the House before, I have full confidence in Minister Costello and to reaffirm this government is committed to reducing smoking rates and helping people give up smoking. Uh, question number nine, the Honourable Willie Jackson. Mr Speaker. And the same rules apply. The question is being asked, be quiet. <coughs> Mr Speaker, to the Minister of Māori Crown Relations, Te <coughs> uh, Is he planning on attending Waitangi 2024? If so, what preparations, if any, has started on behalf of the government? Honourable Tamapota. It's a māngai o te In response to the first partai and in my Wanganui dialect, ana. In response to the second partai, Planning is well underway across government, and the calendar will be finalised shortly. Speaker, Mr. to hear, Mr. Speaker, does the minister think that repealing 7A of the OT Act, disestablishing the Māori Health Authority, repealing smoke-free legislation, <coughs> re removing Māori names of government departments, repealing fair pay agreements, introducing a treaty principles bill? Uh, will enhance the Māori Crown relationship? And if so, will he and the Prime Minister be prepared to front up and discuss this at Waitangi I know, 2024? Yeah, I know the point of order that's about to be made, uh, but I have to say, right at the cusp, uh, the Honourable Jackson, uh, Willie Jackson, brought it just inside the borders. <laughs> but it, point of order. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable he lists uh, some of the government's policies and asks about their context in Crown Māori relations, particularly given the venue that uh, is, is subject to question. So, Honourable Tamapotaka. It's a māngo, it's a whare. We look forward to a warm and cordial welcome by our Taitokarau Whanaunga, where we will discuss many importance of national significance. Okay. A, uh, a supplementary from the right on Winston. Uh, will he set time aside in the discussion or corridor at uh, Waitangi for Willie Jackson to explain why he lost all those Maori seats? <laughs> the, uh, uh, no response required. You, the, the member can ask a question, he can't answer one. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, will, will the Minister ensure? that the Prime Minister will be there. It's a māngo o te whare. E mārama ana au e whaiwhai haere ana te tari o te premier e ona āpiha ki a whakarite mai te haere ki Waitangi. Hoi anō, kei te premier me tōna tari te mana whiriwhiri. Speaker, point of order, Mr Speaker. A point of order. You'll have to get your translations on. But... I don't believe he's addressed the question. What do you think? What do I think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I think that was an excellent answer. Supplementary. Oh, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, does the minister agree with the statements of a young Tamapotaka? 
that there was, when he said central government and local government need to consider sharing power with Māori instead of hoping that Māori entitlements and demands will be satisfied with policies that effectively mainstream Māori into Pākehā society. If so, will he commit to discussing this at Waitangi 2024? It's a manga also whare. National-led governments have linked in and engaged with many Māori over time, including in Waikato with the Waikato River Settlement. And that is a great, that is a, that is a great reflection of working together. Uh, order. Uh, Mr Speaker, point of order. Hold on. Start. Mr Speaker, you didn't even go near the question. Um, didn't yeah. go near it. Yeah, Willie, please. please. Um, I'll come back to you in a minute, right? So we'll just do things bit by bit. Sit right down. Good. Now, I'm not sure who was on their feet first here. Um, supplementary Honourable Chris Bishop. He didn't call. He, he, no, he, excuse me. Sorry. You can say what you like. It's all on film. And, um, and yeah, you sort it out loud if you like. But the way I took it, he started to tell me the point of order before he was called. Yeah. A point of order then, Willie Jackson. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. You're doing a good job. Um, Mr. Well, I'm Speaker. not feeling very good about it at the moment. Okay. And, uh, Mr Speaker, the, min- the Minister did not address whether he agreed with the young Tamapotaka. And if the member looks at his own primary question, even though he's expanded it, and I've been very generous to him, it is so wide of the mark, it's not a reasonable question to ask him. So we'll let it go. Could I ask the Minister as to whether or not eight people, eight New Zealanders with Māori in their background and Cabinet is not evidence enough of equality and democratic representation in this country? It's a māngai o te whare. I'm absolutely proud of there being the highest number of Māori members in the Cabinet that there ever has been. Oh, con- Honourable Willie Jackson. Miss, uh, congratulations uh, about that, Tom. Um, Mr Speaker, can I, can I think, seek leave to table a document? It's, a, it's called a Treaty Agendum for Local Government by Tama Pōtaka, uh, where he... Um, it's very clear... Where, where's it come from? Is it published and is it, it it's, available? Yeah, well, it, it, it's been... But not widely, and many people in this... <laughs> many people in the... That, Probably no one in this house has read this, and it's it's really good reading, Mr. Speaker. It's really good reading. So seeking leave. Sit down. Now that the member's done the advertorial, a lot of people might seek it out to read it, but it's very available. The Honourable Chris Bishop. Supplementary question to the Minister. Uh, Will there be discussions at Waitangi 2024 about the failed TVNZ RNZ merger? No, that's out of order too. So we'll go to question. Yes? You ruled in relation to uh, the uh, primary question's original question that a long list, I think it was 10 items, uh, and whether or not those would be discussed at Waitangi 2024, you said that that was within the, the scope. I frankly find no, that see. remarkable, you, but I'm using formula. You might find it remarkable, but he, he also, I also said that, um, that the, the member could answer that because they were government policies that we're being asked about. Now, you can add to every government policy if you like. At some point, I get to make a, a discretionary decision about whether it's a longer or shorter list. It's been exhausted. So we'll go now to Suze Redmayne. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Cameron Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister for, Workpla- for Workplace Relations and Safety. What steps has she taken to improve flexibility in the labour market? Mr Speaker. Honourable Brooke Van Bellen. Mr Speaker, today I am pleased to announce that my bill to repeal the fair pay agreement system has passed its third reading in Parliament. By achieving this milestone, we're in the final stages of bringing about real change for businesses and workers that helps New Zealanders get ahead. Supplementary. Cameron Lux. Thank you, Mr Speaker. How will repealing fair pay agreements and improving labour market flexibility benefit workers? Mr Speaker, 
This government wants to see higher wages and better conditions for workers, especially during a cost of living crisis. Repealing the fair pay agreements legislation gives businesses the certainty they need to invest and grow, creating more and better jobs. By repealing the fair pay agreements, we will have improved labour market flexibility, which has been a pillar for New Zealand's economic success for the past three decades. This government has removed these one-size-fits-all agreements, which have no place in an economy where innovation is key. The best and most sustainable way to increase the wages of workers and to achieve lower prices for consumers is to improve productivity and to reduce the regulations that hold businesses back. Supplementary. Cameron Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What message would the Minister have for those who opposed the repeal of fair pay agreements? Mr Speaker, there has been a lot of scaremongering around the repeal of the fair pay agreements, and I do wish to clarify a few points. First, I want to make it clear that no worker will have their wages cut or be worse off because no fair pay agreements were finalised. Secondly, Māori, Pacifica, young people and women will not be harmed or made worse off by the repeal of the fair pay agreements because no fair pay agreements were finalised. The minimum standards in employment law remain, including the minimum wage, health and safety law and leave entitlements. Supplementary. You say to the 200 to 300,000 workers who would have benefited from fair pay agreements? No fair pay agreements had been finalised. All bargaining was in very early stages and everybody can be certain that their current entitlements remain. Cameron Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What other plans does the Minister have to increase flexibility in the labour market? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Next Great week policies. I will be introducing a bill to the House to expand access to 90-day trials to employers. Whether a business has Whether a business has two or 200 employees, bringing on any new employee costs time, it costs money and it is in the best interests of any business to find the right fit. Expanding access to 90-day trials will give workers access to new opportunities they would otherwise not have. They allow employers to employ someone who might not tick all the boxes, but a person who might have the right attitude. By delivering on this government's commitment to extend the availability of 90-day trials, this government will give all businesses greater confidence to employ more Kiwis. Question, question number 11, call Suze Redmayne. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Agriculture and asks, what reports have you seen on the export revenue forecasts for the primary sector? The Honourable Tom McClay. Mr Speaker, the situation and outlook for primary industries report released today shows a forecast dip in export revenue. Exports hit a high of $57.7 billion this year, but are forecast to drop to $54.3 billion in the year to June 2024. It's been a tough few years for New Zealand's food and fibre businesses. However, it's still a strong result against a backdrop of very challenging times. Mr Speaker, the government will be working with the primary sector to ensure they are productive and remain world's best practice food and fibre producers. Mr Excuse Speaker, me, sorry. what else is this coalition government doing to help farmers? Well, Mr Speaker, we will be supporting our primary sector businesses through targeting a doubling of the value of exports over 10 years. We think we should measure ourselves more on how much we export and sell overseas by value, not just by volume. Mr Speaker, non-tariff barriers cost New Zealand agriculture around $8 billion each year. We're committed to working to resolve barriers that are preventing New Zealand's world-class priming industry sectors from doing business with the world. We understand that part of growing value is getting more return 
for what we already export. And I'm delighted to work closely with the sector to see what else we should do to supercharge the support to businesses. We're determined to break down barriers that are such a drag on their product productivity and growth. What benefit can our primary sector expect to see from this work? Well, Mr Speaker, the Government is going to champion the significant achievements the primary sector uh, uh, has made at home and abroad. The sector accounts for 81.9 per cent of New Zealand's goods exports to the year June 2023. Food and fibre exports revenue growth has exceeded uh, the non-primary industries for seven of the last ten years. Adding indirect, uh, indirect effects, we estimate that the food and fibre sector contributes to GDP increased by 16 per cent. They are responsible for 13 per cent of employment. Mr Speaker, when the rural New Zealand does well, all of New Zealand does well, and when the rural economy is strong, New Zealand's economy is strong. The Coalition Government's trust farmers will be working to get costs down, better rules, not more regulations, supercharge the rural economy so farmers can be proud of what they do. Mr Speaker, we have stopped Labour's war against farmers. Yeah. Question number 12, Tangi Udakiri. Kia orana, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he stand by all his statements and actions? Honourable Simeon Brown. Mr Speaker, yes, and in particular actions to repeal Labor's inequitable and fiscally irresponsible ute tax by the 31st of December as part of our coalition government's 100-day plan. Can I thank the support from the ACT Party and the New Zealand First Party for this policy? Supplementary. Well, uh, he's trying to speak. Yeah. Does he stand by his statements on a regulatory impact statement for the Land Transport Management Repeal of Clean Car Discounts Amendment Bill? I believe one has been drafted and I believe it would be published. If so, when will it be published? Well, as I said in answer to earlier questions, there is a draft and it will be published. Point of order. Point of order. Uh, Mr Speaker, the, the question was quite clear in terms of timing, and uh, I submit to you that... Hang on. Excuse me. Points of order be heard in, in silence. Uh, the question was quite clear in terms of timing, and I submit to you that the member has failed to address the question. Yes, but it was the second leg of the question. And so ministers must address one of the legs of the question. Supplementary. Does he agree with Christopher Luxon? I believe transparency is important, Openness is important, and talking straight to the New Zealand people about outcomes and the achievement of them or not, it's how you get judged as a government. If so, why is he refusing to release the regulatory impact statement before the final vote on the bill later today? I, I always agree with the Prime Minister who is getting our country back on track. Yeah. Supplementary. Does he really think that telling journalists and Sorry, members... Sorry, just a moment. Start again. You've got to be quiet when people are asking questions. Okay, Mr Speaker, does he really think that telling journalists and members just to just OIA a regulatory impact statement and continue to refuse to provide it to the Parliament meets National's coalition agreement that decisions will be based on data and evidence? If so, how? Well, as I've said to answer the earlier questions, the document will be released. That uh, concludes oral questions.